Well, today as we start our series Supreme, I got to tell you just a little bit about me. For some of you who don't know me that well, you may not know that uh, before I planned on going into ministry, um, I planned on going into advertising and marketing. And uh, it was something that was incredibly fascinating to me before I surrendered to the call of, of God on my life to go into ministry. I thought advertising and marketing was just going to be my life. And so it's one of those things that I've always stayed kind of interested in and studied because I also think it's important um, to understand design and how the church presents itself to the world around us and how how we market the church, how we advertise, all of that kind of stuff. Anyway, a few years ago, before we launched Movement, actually, I was reading this blog from Seth Godin, one of the godfathers of modern marketing and advertising theory, and he posed this question. When you're a competitor in a competitive market, which is the correct word to use to promote your product between these two words, better or best? Better or best? Now, just in case you've never read Seth Godin's marketing theory, let me ask you that question. Would you want your business to be known as better or would you want your business to be known as best? Our natural thinking, he, he argued, would go, well, I wanna be known as best. But Seth Godin proposed that the correct word to use if you're a competitor in a competitive market or industry is the word better. Would you say better? Would you type better in the chat if you're, chat, if you're on a phone or if you're on a tablet where you can put it in the chat? That better is better than best, which goes against everything that we naturally think, right? And his line of thinking was that if everyone chooses best and you choose better, you have identified your company as the creator of a better product and someone willing to work to get continually better. So someone else can claim to be best, but you will always be perceived as better. Oh, you're the best? Well, that's fine. We're better. Oh, you, you, ha you have the best consulting firm? Well, we're a better consulting firm. Oh, you have the best financial services industry? Well, we're, the, we're a better one than your best one. Now, that was a short blog post, and that didn't really change anyone's life, or you know, maybe it will change your life. I don't know. But the reason I bring it up is because at the end of that blog, he took a slight shift in tone and said, for some businesses, better and best are not the right words. In some industries, there is one company that has moved so far ahead of the pack that they are no longer competing with the rest of the industry. Everyone would have to significantly up their game to even catch up with this and form a competition with this company. He said that in that case, you would choose the word superior. You have formed a superior company. You have a superior product. Your car that you're selling, your, your uh, marketing services that you're selling, your realty company, you are a superior product, you have a superior offering. And then there was one more level of company in, in, in an industry where they've gotten their product or service or offering so good that it's literally as good as it can ever get. It cannot be improved upon. It cannot be improved. It cannot be competed with without someone infringing on copyrights or trade secrets. And in that case, he said, you choose to market your company with the word supreme with the word supreme. And in a long roundabout way, that's how I wanted to introduce this series where we're diving into the book of Colossians for four weeks. Because in the New Testament book, that's really a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in the city and region of Colossae, one of the driving themes at the heart of this letter is Jesus is not just better, he is better than best, he is better than better, Jesus is better than superior. In fact, Jesus is supreme. 
And what we're going to discover as we unpack this letter over the next few weeks as we explore and study Colossians together is this simple but undeniably important, undeniably life-changing, undeniably valuable, incredible truth that Jesus is supreme over everything. That Jesus is supreme over everything. Jesus is supreme over everyone. Jesus is supreme over every industry. Jesus is supreme over every family, like every city, every nation, every everything in the world that exists. Jesus is supreme. And the reason I wanted to look at the book of Colossians here for a week is simply this. Sometimes I think we end up dividing our life into spiritual things and non-spiritual things. Faith things and non-faith things. If you're a follower of Jesus, I think we all can kind of run into this tendency. I don't know exactly how we divide this up if you're not a Jesus follower, but if you're not a Jesus follower, I'm so glad you're watching this today. Spiritual things, non-spiritual things, faith things, non-faith things, eternal life things, and not and, and the everyday things. Some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And we are cool with Jesus being in charge of all the spiritual things, the faith things, the eternal things. And then naturally we get to be in charge or someone else gets to be in charge of all the non-spiritual things, the non-faith things, and the everyday things. And if you have ever done that, or if you're doing that right now, let me tell you what that makes you. That makes you normal. It, it, it makes you average. It makes you the same as everyone else. You're thinking, oh no, he was going to say that I was a sinner. Well, you are, but that's not why you're, that's not what makes you a sinner. That makes you normal. That doesn't make you bad. That doesn't make you worse than anyone else. That doesn't make you a sinner. So no judgment here. I have done that at times and in seasons of my life. But you know what happens when we do that very normal thing where we let Jesus have some of our lives and other parts of our lives, we, we kind of cling tightly to us being in charge, where Jesus gets to be supreme in some areas of our lives, in the eternal, in the faith things, in the spiritual things, and in the other stuff of life, we still get to be in charge or we make someone else in charge. What happens is we live segregated lives, or you could say it this way, non-integrated lives, where, where we have our faith and we have our everyday, and our faith and our everyday do not work well together. And if our faith and our everyday ever actually do meet, things do not go well for us because what we have in our life of faith and what we have in our everyday lives do not actually work together. We got Jesus as Lord of our faith, and we have me as, the, as reigning supreme in my everyday life, in my family day life, in my job life. And so I'm in charge of this, and Jesus is in charge of this. And when these two things come together, I'm just telling you, we have to keep keep them separated. We have to keep them segregated. We make sure that we don't integrate this, but when you live a non-integrated life, what you live is a life that lacks integrity. A life that says Jesus is Lord, except in this area. It says Jesus is supreme except in my family where I'm in charge. It says Jesus is supreme except in, 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 when it comes to my finances. I'm going to control all of that. We live segregated, non-integrated, lacking integrity lives because what we say in one area is not true in every area of our lives. And here's the second thing that happens when we kind of like divide up these areas. In some areas Jesus gets, in some areas we get. What happens is we end up making Jesus smaller than he is with, with the way we treat him, with the way we think about him, with what we don't allow him access to in our lives, we diminish Jesus. We, we reduce Jesus to a role that he was never meant 
to fill with, with we, we contain him to a certain area when he wants to be the Lord over all, when he wants to be supreme in every area of our lives, we reduce him and we diminish him and we cage him and we put him into a corner and back him into a room where he only gets access to this. And in doing so, we make Jesus, as, as much as we can, we make Jesus smaller in our lives than he desires to be and than he deserves to be. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look to this amazing book of Colossians and we're going to allow that God to use it to remind us of Jesus's rightful place as supreme over all and supreme over everything in our lives. So as we dive into Colossians, it's important to understand a little bit of context surrounding this letter. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in a city called Colossae. And interestingly, this is not a church that Paul had ever been to, meaning he did not know anyone that he's writing to, which, which kind of begs the question, why would Paul write a letter to people he has no relationship with, to people that he doesn't like? Why would Paul, in, an, in a day and age where writing was not an easy thing, where writing was not, where, where it wasn't just fire off an email, where it wasn't just send a text message, you had to get someone who knew how to write, you had to get paper, you had to get ink in order to correspond with someone. This was a difficult thing. Why would Paul take the, diffi take the difficult step of doing all that to communicate with people that he does not know. The answer is that while Paul is sitting in a Roman prison, his old friend Epaphras comes for a visit. Now, Epaphras was a man who was from Colossae, but he happened to be in Ephesus for an extended visit when Paul came through the city of Ephesus and preached about Jesus and began the church in Ephesus, where, where Paul stayed for between 12 and 18 months in Ephesus. Epaphras came to know Jesus as Savior and Lord during that time, and then he headed back to Colossae and told his family and told his friends and told people about Jesus over and over and over and over to the point that a church began in Colossae. Unfortunately, as time had gone on, while Epaphras is kind of the leader, kind of the pastor, he's, he's the pastor by default because nobody else really seems to know much about Jesus. While he's pastoring that, as time went on, some false teachers had come in and become rather influential, spreading the false teaching that Jesus was, in fact, not divine, not God, or that Jesus was divine, but he didn't start that way. That Jesus actually became divine, that he worked his way to become divine, that, that as he performed miracles, it was because of the favor of God, it was because he had lived such a good life that he was able to become divine, was able to become God, and that he and that he but he but he didn't start out as God, that him and God were not the same, that there was no correspondence, that, that somehow he had earned the favor of God, that Jesus was a miracle worker, he was a great teacher, he was an all-around great guy, but he was not God or he was not God from the beginning. And as you could imagine, this caused quite a bit of confusion in this young church and quite a bit of division in this church as well. So Epaphras, who's pastoring and leading this church, has found himself way in over his head, and he doesn't know how to solve this problem. So he goes to visit Paul in his Roman prison, going under the pretext that he is going to take a care package to Paul while Paul is in prison. But while he's there, he spills the tea on what is happening back home in Colossae. And in response, Paul decides to write 
a letter. And thank God he did for the city in Colossae, for the church in Colossae, for the believers in Colossae to have clarity about who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about and where Jesus came from and what is true about Jesus. It was incredibly important for this church that Paul wrote that letter, but for every church that has existed from then until now, for every believer that's existed from then until now, for every person that's put their faith in Jesus from then until now, this letter clarifies for us who Jesus is and what Jesus' rightful place is. So at the beginning of the letter, Paul introduces himself, and then he launches into the thrust of this letter that he and his friends have been praying, they've, they've heard about the faith in this new church that's begun in Colossae, and they've been praying some very specific things. He says in Colossians 1, starting in verse 9, For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. Here's what Paul prays for them. Now, this, this isn't the, the thrust. This isn't the part about who Jesus is, but this, this is something that Paul prays for them. Paul prays that they would know God's will. Paul prays that as they know God's will, they would walk worthy of what Jesus has done for them. Paul prays that as they walk worthy of what Jesus has done for them, they would, they would bear good fruit, that their, that their works for Jesus would bear good fruit and that other people would come to know and see Jesus through their lives. Paul prays that they would be strengthened to have great endurance in faith. That, 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 that their faith wouldn't just be a momentary thing while life is going good, but that when persecution or when difficult times come up, that their faith would flicker and their faith would fail. He says, I pray that you would have great endurance and patience as you, as, you, as you walk this life of faith. And Paul prays that they would be filled with joy and gratitude that they get to know God, that they have an inheritance that has come from God, that they get to live for God and get to know God because of what Jesus has done for them. Isn't that a fantastic prayer? Like I, I, like, I, like, I love that. I love that Paul prayed that for people that he did not know. I love that. In fact, I love it so much that over the course of my life as a pastor, that has formed how I pray for you and how I have prayed for people that I have pastored for over a decade. I pray that you'll grow to recognize God's voice and that you'll grow to recognize God's will, that as you go through life, that you'll be attentively thinking, God, I wanna know your will so I can do your will. I wanna know your voice so I can do what your voice tells me to do. I wanna recognize what it is that you are up to in, the, in the, my world, in my life, in my relationships, and I wanna walk in your will every day of my life. I pray that for you. I, I, I pray that you will walk wisely and walk worthy of what God has done for you to bring back to him. That God sent Jesus and Jesus went to a cross so that you could know God and that that cost Jesus his life. It cost God the best that heaven has to offer. And if that is what God was willing to do for you, we want to live up to what he has done for us. We want to live up to the cost that he paid for our lives. And I pray that you would walk wisely and that you'll walk worthy of what God has done for you. I pray that you'll go stronger and that your faith will grow stronger too, so that, you're, so that you will endure when life gets difficult, that your faith 
would not be a moment, would not be a flash in a pan, would not be a here today and gone tomorrow, that your faith would grow and grow and grow and you'd become stronger and stronger and stronger in how you follow Jesus, that when life is good and when life is difficult, you'll follow Jesus because your faith has grown to the point where you're not following him just because times are good or just because he brings good, but you're following him because he is good no matter what life looks like here and now and that all of the, and that as all of that happens, I pray that you will know joy and that you'll be filled with gratitude for what God has done for you and who God is to you. I just want to want to let you know your pastor prays that for you every week, sometimes every day, but every week your pastor is praying that for you, like Paul was praying that for them. And here's what Paul ultimately wants them to be grateful for. He says about this, this is about Jesus. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What does Paul want them to be joyful and grateful for? Here's, here's, here's what he wants them to be grateful for, that they have been rescued that they have been transferred from a, a kingdom of death, a kingdom of darkness, into a kingdom of light and life. Their, their existence has been transferred. They have existed prior to Jesus. They existed only knowing death and only knowing sin and only knowing darkness. And now, because of Jesus, God has transferred them from one category into a new category. And now, while they only experience death and darkness and despair and sin, now they have been placed into a kingdom of light and life, and goodness, and peace. He says, you have been rescued, you've been transferred. Someone went to war to rescue you, to pull you out of your emergency situation, and to bring you back to health and wholeness. You've been rescued, you've been transferred, you've been redeemed, meaning something of value was lost in our sin, and we've been damaged, and we've been destroyed, and we've been made dirty, and we have gotten all kinds of out of shape. But in re, when, we, when we were redeemed, Jesus came to clean us up, to restore us to our original settings, to make us back into what we were created to be. We have been redeemed and we have been forgiven. We have forgiveness of sins, which brings us back into relationship with God, which allows for everything else to happen, which allows us to be rescued, which allows us to be transferred, which allows us to be redeemed because we have been forgiven of our sins by Jesus' death on the cross. And we've been invited into his new life by his resurrection when he walked out of that grave. And you're like, whew, Paul comes out smoking. He wants to let everyone know exactly what Jesus did for us. And yes, Paul wants to let everyone know exactly what Jesus did for us. But more than anything in this, in this letter, Paul wants to make sure they know who Jesus is. Before he, like, like yes, there's what Jesus did. But I want to make sure you know who Jesus is. And so, so Paul begins to dive in now to who Jesus is. To who Jesus is. Is and this matters. This is a big deal. This is the very first thing. Paul goes into this poem, this, this poem which we believe to be actually one of the first um, hymns of the early church, that this was something that was not just written for the first time here when Paul said it, but this is something that was, was, a, was a tradition within Paul's churches, the churches that Paul began, so that people could sing and remind themselves of the truth of who Jesus is is. 
And here's what Paul says about who Jesus is. In Colossians 1 verse 15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Let me read that one more time because this is, this is where we're going to camp out the rest of today. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. That's who Jesus is. That's, what, that's where Jesus started. That's who he is. He is the visible image of the invisible God. God, meaning, and this is, this is important, this is ultimately what we're going to hang out on. When we talk about who Jesus is and why Jesus is supreme and what Jesus, is, what Jesus ultimately came to do and what Jesus ultimately came to accomplish, the first thing that we need to understand about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to accomplish is simply this, is that Jesus did not have the best explanation of, about God. Jesus is the best explanation of God. Let me say that one more time, and I'm going to say it slowly and powerfully. This is incredibly important. Jesus did not have the best explanation of God. Jesus is the best explanation of God. To, to put it in, in, in the language that we used at the beginning of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the sermon today, Jesus didn't have a better explanation of God. Jesus didn't have the best explanation of God. Jesus didn't have a superior explanation of who God is and what God is like. Jesus himself is the supreme display of who God is and what God is like. He is the visible image of the invisible God. What we have wondered about our, our heavenly father, we saw in flesh and blood with Jesus. How we wondered how God would respond to these things. We saw how Jesus responded to these things. That Jesus is the visible image with our flesh and blood, like with our eyes, with our ears, we saw him, we heard him, with our hands, we touched him, with, every, with, with, our, with our lives, we interacted with him. He is the flesh and blood image of the God that we claimed we could not know about. He is the visible image of the invisible God, supreme over all creation. This, this idea was, was, was put into a creed form, actually, in, 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 the, in the Nicene Creed, when the, when the church was, was, was beginning to structure itself, when, when it had become so big and so worldwide, it had changed the world so much that, that the Roman government and that kings and queens of, of, of ancient lands, when they were like putting their trust in Jesus, while, while earlier kings and queens had stood opposed to what, what the, the Jesus way and the Jesus life, they put their trust in Jesus and became such a worldwide phenomenon that people needed a, a, a set of beliefs. In the Nicene Creed in 325 AD, at the Council of Nicaea, they used this word to describe the relationship between God and Jesus. They used this word, homoousius. Homoousius. The, the word homoousius literally means of the same being, the same substance, the same essence, and the same nature. That Jesus is of the same being, the same substance, the same essence, and the same nature that when Jesus spoke, it was as if God himself was speaking in our world. When Jesus healed, 
It was as if God himself, our heavenly father, was placing his hands on sick people and healing them and placing his hands on the untouchable people and healing them and placing his hands on the eyes of the blind and healing them. That when Jesus extended the forgiveness of sins, it was as if God himself had come to earth and was forgiving people's sins. And then, oh yes, that when Jesus went to the cross, it was the same as if God himself was on the cross. That while there was God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, these three in one, including Jesus and the Father, they were one of the same nature, of the same being, of the same substance, of the same essence, and of the same heartbeat and mission. Homoousius, they were of the, they were the same. He is the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus himself is the supreme display of who God is and what God is like. Meaning, if you have ever wondered what God is like, everything that you need to know about God is seen in Jesus. Isn't that a strong way to start off your summer? That everything you need to know about God is seen in Jesus. Like, I got some big questions. Everything that you need to know about God on this side of eternity has been shown to us in Jesus. I've got, I got some big doubts. I got, I, got, I, got, I got some stuff I'm not quite sure about. Everything that you need to know about God this side of eternity has been shown to you in the life, in the ministry, in the miracles, in the healing, in the teaching, in the wisdom, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And that is something else. That God didn't just, I mean, that God sent Jesus into the world to save us from our sins. But God also sent Jesus into this world and had him do three and a half years of ministry so that we would know what God is like. So that we would see his character. We could hear his thoughts. We could hear his teaching. We could witness his actions. We could witness his response. And when we saw those things of Jesus, it says in, in, in Colossians that we are very literally seeing God himself because, he is the, because Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. That is just one of those thoughts. I, I swear, I, I, I've taught this in our church for years and years and years. I, I come back to this every single year because I really believe when that gets from your head to your heart and it works its way through your whole being, I'm just telling you, it'll change everything about the way you approach your relationship with God and it'll change the way you approach everything else in life too because Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God that everything that you need to know about God is seen in Jesus. And that should fill us, if we're followers of Jesus, that should, that, what, what I want to do today is I want to ask you two huge questions that flow out of that understanding. And, and this is what we're going to maybe unpack in small groups this week. This is what we're going to dive into this idea as, as, as we get into small groups this week. But these are these two questions that I think should maybe spark some wonder in us. This idea that if, God, if Jesus and God are one, that Jesus and God are the same, that Jesus is the visible image and the ultimate display and the supreme image, the supreme display of who God is and what God is like, that should fill us with, with, with some awe and wonder, but it should also be instructive about how we understand God, how we understand Jesus, and how we approach life following Jesus 
as we follow God. Here's the first question. What do you learn about the Father by looking at the Son? What do you learn about the Father by looking at the Son? Let me ask you this. What do you learn about the love of God the Father by looking at the way that Jesus loved others? I'm just telling you, if you're trying to figure out what it is to love like God loves us and to put that kind of love into practice, what, we, what the kind of love that God requires of us, the kind of love that God has called us into as we follow Jesus, if we're going to love like God, we want to love like Jesus. So what do we learn about the love of God by looking at the love of Jesus? What do you learn about what God hates by looking about at what Jesus refused to tolerate? Did you know? There are some things about, like sometimes we go like, oh, well, Jesus was all love. No, he wasn't, okay? There were some things that Jesus absolutely refused to tolerate, where Jesus became angry and acted out and, and acted in response to what, to what angered him. There are things that Jesus refused to tolerate. I'll just give you one. Religious hypocrisy, Jesus refused to tolerate it. And so what do you learn about what God hates by looking at what Jesus refused to tolerate? Jesus refused to tolerate religious hypocrisy. For some of us, that should send chills down our spine because we have religious hypocrisy down to a science. And if that's true of us, we have something down to a science that God refuses to tolerate. And it's time for us to examine what leads to that and change it in our own lives. What do you learn about God's provision by looking at the way Jesus provided? What do you learn about God's response to sin by looking at the way Jesus responded to sin? To sin in our own lives, to sin in the lives of other people. What do, you, what do you realize about the way Jesus responded to sin? Because that is God's response to sin. What do you learn about the Father by looking at the Son? And what do you learn about following the Son in connection with the Father? What do you learn about the, God the Father by looking at God the Son? Because they are the, He is the visible image of the invisible God. And then here's the second question. And this has everything to do with the way we approach God. And I, I'm just going to tell you, when I first heard this question a few, a few months back, I'm just telling you, this kind of rocked my life, and I have not stopped thinking about this question ever since. Do the names God and Jesus elicit different emotions from you? Like, like when you're thinking, like when you hear me talk about God and you hear me talk about Jesus, is there something in you that goes, well, well, I, I think I can relate to Jesus, but I don't think I can relate to God. It, like, I'm, I'm just telling, like, if there's something in that, we've missed something. Because Paul said that Jesus is the visible image. He is the same. He is homoousius as the God that we cannot be in the same room with. The Son is the same as the Father. The Son is the visible image of the one that we cannot see. Let me, let me show how this plays out. For some of us, when we picture God, our automatic thought goes to fear and trembling. But when we picture Jesus, you picture love and grace. Those are different emotions about someone that we're told in Scripture is the same. About two people that we're told are the same. When you picture God's response to your sin, do you feel the need to hide but when you picture Jesus' response to your sin, you feel like he would cover you and protect you from judgment like he did for the woman about to be stoned after being caught in adultery. You're like, 
I don't, I, I, don't, I don't know. Chances are you do. Chances are there's a different emotion when you like, oh, I can't let God know my sin. But Jesus, like Jesus, he'll cover, like I'm telling you, different reactions to the same person, to, a per, to two people we're told are the same. When you think of spending time in the presence of God the Father, do you think you'd be incredibly nervous and fearful, but you'd be peacefully comfortable in the presence of Jesus? If so, there is something that we have missed along the way. And I just want to tell you this as, as, as we kind of come to a close today, I want, want to make sure we understand this. If the names God and Jesus elicit different emotions from you, you have misunderstood one or the other, and you have misunderstood the connection between the two. Because Paul says, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And as the visible image of the invisible God, he is supreme over everything. Today, as we begin to understand why Jesus is supreme, it starts with understanding that, that he is the visible image of the invisible God. And as such, he is supreme over all. Today, I hope that you can understand that. I hope that you can wrap your mind around that. I hope that if that's something that, if, that when you hear God and you hear Jesus, they elicit very different responses, I hope you'll wrestle that to the ground. Why you fear God, but you trust Jesus. I hope that you'll wrestle to, to the ground. Why you feel, why you would tremble in the presence of God, but be comfortable having a root beer in the presence of Jesus. I hope you'll wrestle that to the ground and realize that in the end, your connection with Jesus connects you to your heavenly father because he is the visible image of the invisible God. He is supreme over all. And if you'll get that from your ears to your head, to your heart, to everything else, I'm just telling you, that changes the whole ball game. It changes your whole relationship with God. It changes your whole relationship with Jesus. It helps you to understand them in full because here's what Jesus came to do. This is what John said as we close. He said, the word Jesus became flesh and he dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. When we see Jesus and God differently, it's because we see one as graceful and one as truthful. And John says, he's all of it. Because he didn't just come to show us something of God. He came to show us everything about our heavenly Father, full of grace and full of truth. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for Jesus and what he is to us and who he is to us. Thank you that he is supreme. Thank you that he didn't just have a better or a best explanation for God or another explanation from God, but that he came to show us who you are and what you're like so that we could know you, so that we could relate to you, so that we could trust you more fully, so we could feel that we could approach you and know that you, that he, what he showed us is who you are, that everything we need to know about you, we have seen in Jesus. Thank you that that's true. And thank you that we can live from that, we can live out of that, and we can live forward into our world knowing that he is supreme over all because he is the visible image of the invisible God. So God, I pray today that we would have confidence in that, that we place our trust in that, that we would believe that what Jesus showed us is everything we need to know about you. That we would trust that who he is and how he loved and how he responded and what he refused to tolerate, that that's what's true about you as well.
And God, that, that would help us to approach you. That would help us to take seriously what you tell us to take seriously. And that it would help us to love like you want us to love because we've seen it in Jesus. So God, I pray that we would trust in the supreme Savior who came to be the supreme display of you so that we could know you and love you and trust you and follow you with everything that we've got. Help us to do that, Jesus. Give us wisdom to know where this lands for us. Would you give us the courage to wrestle some things to the ground and put into practice everything that you want us to put in practice? We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.